0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Unauthorized Disclosure. I am one of your hosts, Rania Kallick, and I'm joined by the show's other host, Kevin Gastola. Hello, Kevin.
1: Hello, Rania.
0: So we're very excited to have with us today one of my favorite, actually probably one of my like the my most favorite person in the world, Zoe Alexandra, a journalist with People's Dispatch. If you guys are not following People's Dispatch, like you need to immediately... Go follow People's Dispatch. Uh, have their web page bookmarked. Sign up for their email list, whatever, because they are one of the best outlets reporting what's happening on the ground from movements around the world. And Zoe, right now, is in Brazil. You've you've been in Brazil for a while. You're going to stay in Brazil uh, to cover the election between Lula da Silva and Jair Bolsonaro. Um, Zoe, first of all, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you on.
1: Yes, thank Thank you for taking some time to
0: talk
2: with us. Oh, of course. It's always a pleasure to chat with you guys.
0: And there's a lot we want to chat about because when it comes to Latin America, I mean, you are one of the most knowledgeable people that we know, I think, um, speak several of the languages, both Portuguese and Spanish. And I mean, probably one of the bravest people I know, because you're just like willing to go out into the most remote areas, um, to be like with movements. So I guess we, maybe let's start with the most, uh, timely issue at the moment, which is the election in Brazil. We just had the first round a few days ago. Lula da Silva got, 6 million more votes or over 6 million more votes than his far-right counterpart, the incumbent Bolsonaro. Um, People were hoping that that Lula was going to win in the first round. He would have needed 51%, though that was a long shot. And he ended up getting 48%, which many people still view as a victory. So they're going to go into a second round of, of votes just between the two of them on October 30th. So why don't you tell us, like, Was this indeed a victory for Lula? Is there, is there disappointment? How are people, the coalition that he, that he helped build, um, who've been organizing for him to win, how are they feeling on the ground? Do you think it's likely he'll win a second round? I mean, just give us your, your observations after the first round, basically.
2: It's definitely a victory for Lula. It's definitely a very important victory and not only because of what happened on Sunday, but, what would happen to make sunday possible um, i think it's important that people situate these elections in a in a broader context of consistent attacks on democracy consistent attacks on movements attacks on the workers party itself and above all attacks on lula da silva as a person as a political um, you know person political leader he was in prison for 580 days um, and so him coming to these elections with the support that he had with the momentum that he had in itself as a victory so first of all i think people are excited and feeling hopeful because it was only through people's struggle it was only through extremely dedicated consistent persistent mobilizing organizing that he was even able to contest in these elections and it's not only it wasn't only a political battle of coming together, creating these alliances for him to be the candidate. It wasn't only a legal battle, which uh saw the, in the courtrooms with the legal battle against the case that was built against Lula Silva, but it was really a battle in the streets um, against this uh, anti-workers party sentiment, against this false case that was created against Lula, accusing him of corruption charges. He was released because of this popular struggle. He was released because for 580 days, militants of the Landless Royal Workers Movement, of the Workers' Party of Brazil, of the youth movements, of women's movements were every single day outside prison, demanding his release, greeting him every morning, afternoon and evening. I mean, his candidacy is a product of all of that struggle. And so him, coming in first in this first round, albeit not achieving the victory that many had hoped for because who wouldn't wanna win in the first round? Who wouldn't wanna have that strong victory right off the bat? Um, But it is a victory and it has to be seen as that. Um, It's also important to point out that in Brazil's history, only two presidents have won in the first round. It is extremely common for there to be a second round victory um, to this to go to a second round is a very diverse society with many diverse opinions. Uh, It is very, it's not historically, um, you know, very common for people to win in this first round. So that has to be said, it's not unexpected that he didn't win in this first round. Of course, there were uh, the opinion polls, and I think a lot of people were surprised, not because of how much Lula got in the first round, because actually the opinion polls never gave him More than fifty percent of voter intention. They gave him more than fifty percent of valid votes, which is a different, which is a distinction. But um, the difference that was that's happening in the opinion polls is how many votes Jair Bolsonaro got. And in that sense, it is a worrying turnout because he was able to get many, many more votes than people had predicted. Than the votes had predicted. This largely has to do with his extreme unpopularity. And so when these polling uh, exercise are being carried out. Many people have a theory that there's uh, he was the embarrassed vote, and so people didn't want to answer the polls. They didn't want to say there was that they he was voting that they were voting for him. And furthermore, in his speeches, Jair Bolsonaro consistently said that he doesn't trust the polls and that people shouldn't trust the polls. So his supporters were the people who were most. Uh, likely to not respond in these polls. And this, of course, gives the outcome that we saw, which is that in polls, he was polling at 33%, and he ended up winning about uh, 43% in these elections. So that's something that has to be noted, that above all, you can never 100% really rely on what happens in the polls. Of course, they're a good indicator. However, there's always going to be a bit of a surprise there. Um, I think all in all that's, that's really how people are feeling the results in terms of the composition of the House, uh, the Chamber of Deputies, also saw some growth in the far right. However, this is a bit of a continuation given that for the four years that Bolsonaro was in office, the right really, really controlled the Congress. Now these votes have shifted towards the, um, the liberal party, which is not a liberal party, it's the party that is supporting Jair Bolsonaro. It's a very conservative party. They have the majority in the chamber of deputies, however, we saw growth of, for example, the number of seats that PT has, the Workers' Party, PSOL, which is the Socialism and Liberty Party. Um, these all have seen um, significant growth. There was a lot of different candidates um, elected from historically oppressed um, communities. All of this are signs of progress, or signs of the arduous work that movements have been putting in to arrive at these elections.
1: And what about the election day itself, Uh, since you're connected with the movements and people who are on the ground, making sure that everyone was able to vote, making sure that the polling places uh, gave everyone access? Were there anything, I mean, I guess I'm just going off my experience in the United States, knowing the systemic disenfranchisement that unfolds and that perhaps that could be a prong of Jair Bolsonaro's strategy to stay as competitive as possible. I mean, are there issues with election integrity in Brazil?
2: Well, this the question of election integrity is actually quite central to these elections, but not for the reasons that uh, they are, for example, in the United States. One of the big uh, messages that Jair Bolsonaro was trying to spread ahead of the elections was really to disincentivize people from participating by spreading um, discourses of fear, not only about uh, the integrity of the electoral system itself, but also um, messages of violence. Um, There were mass texts that were sent out to people's phones saying that, threatening them, saying that if they supported Lula, there would be violence. And so there were different strategies to kind of dissuade people from participating. The Brazilian voting system itself is actually one of the best in the world. It's an electronic voting system. They're in the process of moving completely over to biometric data, which means that you vote with your fingerprint, a very secure system that they have in the country. Um, And Oh, sorry, did I cut out?
0: No, no, you're here. You're just, no. your your video cut out like, is like kind of pausing sometimes, but we can hear you fine.
2: Okay. Yeah. Um, so it's an extremely safe system. Uh, one of, as I said, one of the best in the world, it's an electronic voting system, which eliminates a lot of human interference in the counting process and many other of those um, elements, which we see across the world that have, his, have generally had uh, some disputes in that sense. For example, the Honduran elections, a lot of electoral fraud being able to be committed. Brazil doesn't have this. However, this electronic voting system was kind of the centerpiece of Jair Bolsonaro's attacks ahead of the elections. Uh, he has since 2018 been calling for a return to paper ballots, um, paper ballots saying that uh, the electronic system is unreliable and that in 2018, he should have won in the first round against a Workers' Party candidate, candidate uh, Fernando Haddad. Um, He has essentially mobilized his base on many different messages, but one of these is the attack to the um, voting system. Uh, And in response, the Supreme Court, the um, electoral court has defended this system, defending its integrity, its transparency, its uh, efficiency, and uh, Jair Bolsonaro has continued to attack it. He said that um, he made many different threats saying that the military was going to do an independent count, which was also kind of a misnomer because anyone can do an independent count. You can just go to the polling station after polls close and ask for a ticket, seeing what the voting was. Um, he made many different threats. He also called for the electoral court to be purged. He called for the Supreme Court uh, to be purged. I was on the streets on September 7th, which was his big, massive mobilization. And I'd say probably one-third of the signs that I saw were about the voting system and and about the fact that they wanted military intervention if the electronic system was upheld. So that is, it's been a very big center point of contention, but for many people his attacks on the system were essentially meant to dissuade people, to create controversy, to create conflict, um, and make voting seem like a scary thing. And in a sense this worked because While voting is mandatory in Brazil, there was a pretty high abstention rate, somewhere around uh, 20%. So that has to be taken into account. Um, He doesn't want people to vote because he knows that uh, people thinking with their common sense wouldn't vote for him. And so the voting system, the electoral system has come in uh, to the conversation, um, but mostly uh, kind of weaponized by the right wing. And the left has had to defend it, even though In many cases in Brazil, the left has really had to defend the bourgeois state and its instruments because of the attacks from Jair Bolsonaro on them.
0: Yeah, I mean, he did definitely kind of take a page out of the Trump playbook in terms of laying the groundwork for uh, trying to delegitimize results that he didn't feel were going to go in his direction. But, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if we could maybe rewind a little bit, because... I, I'm, you know, we, we know like the, this is a big deal that Lula got the support he did this time around because you mentioned he spent time in jail, right? Can you talk a little bit, at least briefly walk our audience through what happened in the lead up to Bolsonaro getting elected in the country? Because, the, I mean, what took place was this basically like anti-corruption lawfare coup that took out both Lula da Silva and Dilma and Dilma, as well later on in like a parliamentary coup that was done in collaboration with the U.S. And I think it's really important for people to understand that very recent history because that was a part of the U.S. trying to basically take out a left-leaning government. So can you walk us through basically the rise of Bolsonaro? He wouldn't have come to power probably had it not been for what the right wing did in collaboration with the U.S. against Lula and his, uh, and his successor.
2: That's exactly right. I mean, to be honest, Bolsonaro was an ineffective uh, member of uh, Congress, he passed only two laws in the three decades that he was serving in the body, you know, not a very high success rate, if you ask me. Um, He was known for being divisive, he was known for being extremely uh, cruel in his statements. I don't even want to mention them now, because they're honestly just such awful things that he said about minorities about women, horrible things. Um, and essentially he, he comes as the only proposal of the right in a moment of kind of crisis on the right wing and of, of consecutive coups against the left. And so essentially uh, Dilma Rousseff gets elected in 2014. She is following um, the government of, of uh, Lula Silva, attempting to continue on many policies of combating hunger, combating poverty. There had already been cases opened up against Dilma, against Lula, and against other members of the Workers' Party for committing corruption. Um, this is largely linked to Odebrecht, which is the large Brazilian construction company. And basically, <laughs> it's funny because a lot of times we say that the justice system doesn't work. Um, if you look at cases of uh, victims of state torture, of state terrorism, of people who have been disappeared, of people who have had their family members killed by the police, the justice system moves like a, a slug. It's, it's a snail pace. It's, you know, every year you expect something to happen and it never happens. Extremely slow. And this is, I would say, the same across the world. For the people who are hurt by the state, it doesn't work. However, when it comes to left-wing politicians being persecuted by the justice system in order to essentially render them ineffective politically, it moves extremely quickly. And so what we saw with Lula is that there are corruption charges pressed against him, a series of different cases that are opened up in a very quick succession. And he's fighting these cases in court. They present several habeas corpuses. Um, It's in the context of him trying to run for, you know, being one of the favorable candidates running for presidency. And essentially, um, he is imprisoned, the habeas corpus is rejected, he's imprisoned and rendered ineffective politically. And this is part of, I should rewind because I think I uh, fast forwarded, but this is part of an entire investigation called Operation Car Wash. And Operation Car Wash is precisely created um, to investigate these acts of corruption committed by, committed by, uh, the Workers Party of Brazil (PT), um, and it's an entire team of prosecutors which are given prizes and awards globally because of their incredible work <laughs> investigating cases of corruption. I mean, what to say? There's so much to say. There's a there's a famous image of um, one of these prosecutors who has. Uh, a very rudimentary po- uh, PowerPoint presentation and it has Lula in the middle. It has, a, has a, like a circle of Lula in the middle and then it has all of these boxes that's like uh, Odebrecht corruption, um, you know, pointing out all these different things and all the arrows just point to the middle showing that they're pointing to Lula saying that he committed all these acts of corruption. And so essentially Operation Car Wash, this task force carries out all these investigations, starts pressing charges, against Lula, against Dilma, against other members of the Workers' Party. At the same time, you have a judge, Sergio Moro, uh, who's from uh, the, the court in Paraná, he, which we find out later, he's working with the prosecution. He has, what's, he has telegram chats with the prosecution talking about how they need to accelerate the process against Lula, how they need to accelerate the process against members of the Workers' Party. And they essentially work hand in hand um, to put Lula in prison, to defame the Workers' Party. They uh, they accelerate this process. They say, it doesn't matter, we'll find the proof later. Let's just get him in there. Um, Of course, we can thank the Intercept for getting all these leaked chats and publishing and making them public for the world because already when Lula was getting persecuted, It didn't, something didn't seem right. It seems like it was going really quickly. They didn't have any evidence. They really relied on mass media to build their case. Uh, Mass media was working hand in hand with the courts, with the prosecution to create this case, public create this case, publishing um, outrageous uh, declarations, accusations that were not founded in truth that didn't have any support. I mean, the journalistic integrity of these people is quite low given what they were publishing. I mean, you can Google um, Lula Silva Preso and see some of these crazy magazine covers that they would publish. And this was essentially inundating the mainstream media for years. And so in that moment where you have the collaboration between the media, between the prosecution, between the judges, they put Lula in prison and they render him politically um, unable to serve. And it's right then that... Jair Bolsonaro appears as a possible candidate, Um, he's able to unite the bourgeoisie, he's able to unite the the diverse sectors of the right, Lula, who is the people's favorite, who had uh, I think an 80% approval rating at the height of his um, uh, presidency in 2010, extremely high if you ask me. and. He took Brazil off the hunger map, he was extremely uh, popular, he was favored to win the 2018 elections, but he's put in prison. Jair Bolsonaro gets the support of the right wing that has been working so very hard to eliminate uh, Lula. And it's in that context that uh, Jair Bolsonaro wins the elections against Fernando Haddad in 2018. Not only did they take Lula out uh, out of the running, but they also Conducted one of the most sophisticated fake news operations using WhatsApp, using social media, inundating people's phones with lies about Fernando Haddad, saying that he was going to force all of their children to be gay, saying that he was a child abuser, all sorts of things which legitimately had zero, zero truth to it. Um, just to get people scared, just to dissuade them from voting for him. And that's how Jair Bolsonaro was elected. He's not elected by popular vote, if you think of it in that sense, because he was elected in a a coup scenario where not only was Dilma taken out by the coup, a parliamentary coup, which was also part of this lawfare campaign, in which Jair Bolsonaro himself supported the military dictatorship that tortured her, Not only was Dilma taken out by the coup, Lula was eliminated by essentially a coup, a coordination of all these right-wing forces. Uh, And then a mass fake news operation is created against Fernando Haddad and Jair Bolsonaro is elected. So it's in this scenario that we're even coming to these 2022 elections with all of this adversity against the Workers' Party, all of this adversity against Lula. And even then the Workers' Party is able to get the support it's able to get.
1: Mm -hmm. All right. Unless you have anything else, Rania, I'd like to move to Cuba.
0: Well, actually, before we, I do have a question to actually zoom out before we move to Cuba real quick, which is important. This is a question that's kind of like a segue from Brazil to the rest of the region. We saw that Juan Guaido actually made this really pathetic video endorsing Bolsonaro. Um, And I mean, obviously like this looming election of Lula, he's the likely going to win, I hope, fingers crossed, but he's supposed to win if everything stays as it is, unless something wild happens in the coming weeks. Um, It'll it'll be a part of a pattern that we've seen what people are calling a second pink tide, a pink tide Uh 2.0. So I'm curious, what's the importance of having a left-leaning leader in Brazil, which is the biggest country in the region, for the rest of the region? Um, Because you have all of these other countries Right, we've always had Cuba, you know, Cuba for the last sixty years. But then you've also got Venezuela for the last, you know, twenty. Um, we now have the, the, you know, the reversal of the coup in B- Bolivia, uh, the reversal of the coup in Honduras, uh, the, you know, a sort of social democrat elected in Chile, uh, Argentina's moving to the left. Like you've got all these different things taking place across the region. What's the significance of, of Brazil joining in this pattern?
2: It's, inter- I mean, it's impossible to even calculate the importance of Brazil having a progressive government. So many possibilities. I mean, even if the other countries weren't progressive, it would mean it would have a huge impact, just given the size, as you said, of Brazil. But we're, it, we're in a moment right now in Latin America where the majority of the countries have progressive leaning governments. There's different degrees, different shades of what progressive is. Um, and how far they're willing to go, for example, to defend Cuba and Venezuela, or to even um, challenge the capitalist system. But they, the majority are progressive. They are trying to further a program that guarantees their people the basic rights to how um, jobs, survival. Um, these are governments that are more open to working together. Um, I think really Petro in Colombia has Broken down humongous barriers um, in terms of what the Colombian government was doing before. And so, having a Lula da Silva government in this context is huge. It would open so many doors in terms of economic cooperation, um, political coordination. Um, we've been talking, I mean, we talk a lot of here, especially about the environmental crisis, which Brazil is really at the heart of. Um, Brazil has. The Amazon rainforest is in Brazil, it's in Bolivia, it's in Peru, it's in Ecuador, it's in Colombia, but a large part of it, the majority of it, is in Brazil. And under the Jair Bolsonaro government, it has been severely attacked. Um, This is a huge part of his presidency, is really allowing illegal mining, allowing logging, allowing these large landowners to burn parts of the Amazon, Um, to continue extractive activities, to attack indigenous groups there. This has been an awful, awful uh, development really for humanity, for the Brazilian people, for the environment. And so having a government that would be invested in protecting the Amazon would have, you know, enormous implications for the environment itself, for the Amazon region the possibility of having coordination around that, around the protection of the environment. We all heard the incredible speech by Gustavo Petro in the the United Nations about how important environmental protection is at this moment and working with other countries towards this. So that would be huge economic cooperation. I mean, the, the ability of countries in Latin America to rely on each other for economic advancement and growth knowing that, of course, just having Venezuela as a progressive government is not enough. Venezuela needs the other countries. It needs to be able to work with Brazil to be able to import things from Brazil that it doesn't have, to be able to have these exchanges. This is crucial. And uh, Lula da Silva has already emphasized the importance of spaces like Celac, like BRICS, and other spaces of... Um, cooperation, South-South cooperation, medical collaboration, working with Cuba, distribution of vaccines. One of the, you know, biggest tragedies of the Jair Bolsonaro government was his handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, where over 650,000 people died because of his policies, because of him blocking vaccines from entering the country, um, because of blocking the possibility of uh, isolation policies. And so... If you have a government like Brazil that can support Cuba economically and also benefit from their immense scientific research and advances, that's a win for everyone on the continent. And of course, as I said, BRICS, the cooperation, South-South cooperation, challenging the US dollar, challenging the IMF and all of these institutions, which all they do are uh, you know extract from these global South economies and prey on their on their need for investment, it's really important, um, and it would have global implications, which is why I think it's it's been you know talked about so much by uh, media across the globe, and why there's so much emphasis on following this the elections there.
1: Well, well, that's really good for you to ar- articulate, and I'm glad that Ranya asked that question. I actually pulled a clip of Ziamaro Castro at the UN General Assembly that I'd like to play, uh, and and you could provide further comment on it because it's not just that we've seen a surge in the left, which could counter these right wing forces, but it's also that these leaders are explicitly calling out American capitalism and doing something to confront it. So uh, I'll play this and and this is this is part of what we saw at the UN General Assembly. Rania can discuss it because she was there reporting for Breakthrough News. Uh, But also, this is part of seeing how there are these leaders that are forming this coalition that can speak with such integrity and authority, having been the targets of the the system.
3: It is my firm belief that None of these figures will astound anyone in a world which today lives under monetary dictatorship. A monetary dictatorship which imposes draconian measures of fiscal discipline on the poorest among us. A monetary dictatorship which increases the suffering of the majority left behind and a monetary dictatorship in which speculative capital has no limits. It is patently clear that today, for our country to survive, we must reject this so-called austerity which favours those which concentrate wealth in a few hands and favours those who increase inequality exponentially. The poor nations of the world will no longer tolerate coups. They will no longer tolerate the use of lawfare nor nor colour revolutions that are habitually organised to plunder our extensive natural resources yeah.
1: and so that's Xiomara who is now the leader of Honduras and as she's very clearly articulating this and we'll, we'll get to Cuba later but I guess start broadly i mean maybe just get your general comment of of how this alliance is not just about what's happening internally but also dealing with this meddling from western countries
2: definitely i mean for me, honestly, the, the first day of the General Assembly with Mara Castro, with Luis Arce, with Gustavo Petro, I mean, it was, you really felt that there's a new force awakening and that these countries, which, especially with Honduras and Colombia, which historically have just been trampled by the U.S. I mean, trampled even, uh, it's not even saying enough. It's, they've been essentially destroyed by the U.S., by neoliberalism, by the IMF, and that they're going to this huge international forum and denouncing these kind of things is, is incredible. And I think it really shows that the tides are shifting. And of course the US is, is also learning how to re-engage with these countries and how to shift their own discourse. They know that they can't you know, do what they did in Honduras and uphold coups and uphold dictatorships. They're also trying to figure out what is their next move because they know the tides are turning. And Ziomara I, I, Castro—I mean, she's so symbolic of this of this new wave of coming to power after 12 years of a of a dictatorship implanted by a coup in Honduras, where the country is decimated. Over 70 percent of people are in poverty um, in Honduras before those elections that happened. And so, this emphasis on on the humanity and the autonomy of these countries to rescue their people is so important and. That's her speech, Luis Arce's speech, Gustavo Pedro's speech this day speaks to this. Um, and of course, we want them to be the most anti-imperialist possible. We want them to be uh standing up in ways that we've seen Cuba and Venezuela do. But however far they're going, I think is important to recognize, especially where they're coming from. You know, they're as I said, their countries have been decimated um by these policies, by hit by decades of foreign companies plundering their resources. So these steps they're taking on the international realm of standing up to the United States, but also lifting up their people and bringing their populations to a minimum grade of survival of having, of trying to take one step closer to guaranteeing housing, to guaranteeing food, to lifting people out of hunger and poverty is so important. And only then will it be, they'll be able to kind of take on the challenges they need to further develop and and grow these alliances um, necessary to challenge the bigger forces at play in the region
0: well said I agree wholeheartedly and I mean Zoe this was an incredible hour to get to hear from you I'm about to sneeze I just sneezed okay <laughs> sorry about that that was oh
1: no that's one's your cue to plug own. That's your cue to plug your media outlet. That's what we do now. We we sneeze. We sneeze to to
0: give you a chance, yeah, to plug People's Dispatch. Go for it.
2: Well, please follow People's Dispatch. We are doing our best to cover people's struggles across the world, uh, from Brazil to South Africa to Tunisia to India. We are speaking to people involved in movements and organizing to try to create a better society and a better future, speaking to them about what's most important to them, what are the issues that people are facing on the ground. These are voices you really and truly won't hear anywhere else. So I really encourage people to check it out, not because you know we're doing such a great job, which I do believe that we're trying to do our best, but because these voices are so important to be heard. Um, these are people who are putting their lives on the line to create this future that are risking everything um, to fight against oppression and We want you to hear from them. That's why we're talking to them. That's why we're doing the work of translating interviews. That's why we're constantly trying to bring these voices to you because we think that these are the people that we must listen to when humanity is in such a deep crisis. It is the people who are in dialogue with the working class, who are in dialogue with the masses, who are fighting for that future that need to be heard because it's their proposals that are going to change the world and that are going to save humanity. Nice.
1: Thank you very much. It was really good to be able to talk with you. And, uh, you know, like we say every week to people who follow our show, we'll be back next week with another episode. And if you would like to become a subscriber and support this show, you can go to thedissenter.org and for as low as $4 a month, $3 a month if you become an annual subscriber. You can get access to all of our full episodes as well as the exclusive episodes that we post